Hello, church. My name is Gerald. I'm on staff here, and I serve on the uh, worship and production teams. Um, but today, I have the honor and privilege of reading the scriptures. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him so now, so now <clears throat> that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always give, to give thanks to you, to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of, the, <clears throat> of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. All right. Well, thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. That's a long one, Gerald. <laughs> you know, in, in First Peter, um, it actually, uh, Peter says, uh, there's things that Paul writes that sometimes can be confusing. And I wonder if he had Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in mind when he wrote that. Uh, because there's a lot in there. I mean, you've got, you've got the man of lawlessness. You've got the rebellion. You've got the restrainer. Uh, you got the son of destruction. Um, so buckle in. Um, I hope you brought lunch. Um, there's a lot in here. 
Um, well, w- one thing that, that you notice right away, I mean, it, there obviously is there's things in this passage that are confusing um, that people have debated uh, in the church. A lot of people that agree on a lot of things disagree uh, with many things in this passage. Um, but one thing we can all agree on is it's about the future. Uh, a lot of it is about things that are to come in a confusion about uh, what the timeline will be and how do we as human beings adjust with things in our mind where we know uh, what's going to happen next or can assume or deduce by what's happened in the past what's going to happen next. And it made me think of uh, a time, a season, it seems like so long ago, um, back in 2005 when uh, just the, the idea of Ocean City Church was just starting to be birthed as kind of a dream in our family's mind. We didn't even know uh, what position or what, what part we would play in that. And we're trying to think of, okay, what, what does it look like for us to, to, to be a part of a community down here at the beach and be a part of a, a church plant team down here at the beach? And initially, we thought we're going to move right away in 2005, and then through some wisdom um, and just because uh, the heartbeat of River City Church was so much of what God uh, had planned for what we were doing down here at the beach, we, I went on staff there. And I think for us, we're thinking, one, you know, we're going to, this is going to be you know, 2005, maybe by 2006, we'll have, you know, seven or 800 people in our new church, right? <laughs> um, and you just, in your mind, you think you know, right? You think you know the future. And I remember we moved into our house in Riverside. And, you know, you're thinking, okay, we don't know how long we're here. We're just here temporarily. You know, we're going to be confirmed. And then we're going to be sent to plant the church. And I remember my wife said something in her wisdom. It was like, I'm, I'm going to invest here in this community. Although our hearts and our minds and what we think is going to happen in the future uh, is down at the beach. We're going to invest here. We're going to make friends here. This is going to be our home. We're going to fully unpack. We're going to put the pictures on the walls. We're going to do all of the stuff. We're going to make this place a home. This is going to be our home. And, you're, and the, the beauty in that and the wisdom in that for anybody that thinks they're just somewhere temporarily is statistics will show if you move somewhere and think that you're moving within a year, you'll probably move in five. And that was kind of our, our story. Like we thought, you know, maybe a year or two uh, and then we got to the point at River City Church, we're like, we don't even know. We loved it so much. We didn't even know if we wanted to go. Like, is God really calling us to the beach? I really loved my job. I loved the staff that I was working with. I loved the family and the community uh, that had been birthed there. In fact, I remember telling another young couple that, that had uh, moved into San Marco that was on staff that thought, okay, you know, we're, this is our life right now. Um, I remember going into their house two years Two years after they had moved in, and there was still boxes and rooms. There were still pictures that were not hung but leaning on the wall. Because their mindset was, we know what the future is, and we're going to be moving soon. And I remember saying, hey, I don't care if you're going to be here for six more months for the sake of your kids. And because you don't know what God has for you, put the pictures up on the wall. You have no idea what's coming next. You have no idea when it's coming next and what the next season will be. Look, for two years you've thought... We're moving in a month, or we're going to be called out of here in a month, and you've had these boxes on the floor. And much of what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica is, hey, you've, you've thought you heard some news from some people that say, this is the timeline for the end of, end of days. This is when it's all going to go down, and you're going to be raptured up with the ones that have gone before you, and it's all going to happen the day of the Lord. And they were stressed that maybe because he comes in like a thief in the night that we've missed it. 
And the Apostle Paul is coming in to reassure them, to tell them something. He's saying, don't allow what you think you know to dictate beyond what you know. Don't, don't allow what you think you know to dictate what, what you think you know. You don't want any, you, you, you want life to be, the rhythm of life to be pulled together by faithfulness. Now I want to turn into this scripture just for a moment, and we're going to answer a few questions from this passage because there, there is a few. I mean, we do have to talk about who in the world is the man of lawlessness? I just want to know who he is. Does he wear a cowboy hat? Because it seems like he should. Um, but you, you, I, we want to know. We want to be biblically literate. I mean, that is important. It's not the most important thing, though. And it's not the most important thing that you'll find in this passage. And it's not, Paul's point is not, hey, let's make sure that they're all biblically literate. You know, that these guys could actually make a B in seminary. It's not what he's trying to do. He's actually wanting them to get back to the business of carrying the name of Jesus relentlessly and to let them know that they have hope, hope that is not hinged to anything that they've heard or anything that is here on planet Earth, that they are citizens of another country. They're citizens of heaven and not of Earth. But for now, this is your home. And he's saying, hey, this is what you should be doing. So he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about, they're, they're all wound up about, uh, when's Jesus coming back? The second advent. He says, in our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, listen to this. Listen to this wisdom. This is part of the, the, the point that he's trying to make. To not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter or podcast or text from a friend that thinks they know when Jesus is coming back. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come. And he, he's trying to give them markers. He's like, hey, I want, I want you to relax, because it's going to be more obvious than you think. Unless the rebellion comes first. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So he's clarifying. He's, he's a pretty, you know, most commentaries say that Paul's upset because somebody came along and actually used the words of Paul and twisted them and making people think, hey, Jesus is coming back or Hey, we know, we've read the signs, we've seen all of the stuff, we see that this is happening, we read the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and we know when it's all going down. We have figured it all out. And the Apostle Paul's going, hey, hey, roll it back a little bit. Let me explain to you a few things that have to happen and what's going to be obvious. Now, as we read this passage, there's so much in it that the Apostle Paul is saying directly to the church at Thessalonica. The things that we don't have access to are what was that message that he preached? Like, what did he say to them specifically about the end times beyond what we read in 1 Thessalonians? Obviously, there's more there because we don't really hear about some of the things that he mentions here, right? So we would have if that was in that letter. So there was obviously when he was with them, he talked about it. When he presented the gospel, he talked about the second advent, the hope that Jesus will return, the resurrected Christ. We will see him again. He will come and he will make everything right. But he gave, there's references to 
these strange things we read in here, the rebellion, the, the son of, or man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So let's answer a few questions. What do we know? What can we know? Like when we read this scripture, what do we know? By looking at this passage and, and across the landscape of scripture, and then what we do not know and what matters most. I mean, that's when I'm looking at a passage like this, I think especially when we're in a, in a context you know, with you know, a bunch of people in the room and for city group leaders, again, you're welcome. Um, you, you've got to leave this gathering and then as quickly as Monday, you're going to be unpacking this passage with your friends in your house and people are going to be going, what is this? Is this the Antichrist? When's he coming? Um, Darren will tell you. Um, I don't know. It's Darren. Darren's not even here. He's at the TPC, rascal. You know? Antichrist. Um, sorry, I'm just kidding. It's terrible. Um, all right, so let's start out with question number one. What do we know? Okay, and then let's, in that, is, okay, let's, let's break down a little bit about the man of lawlessness. We're going to move through some of this quickly because, again, getting tripped up on this stuff is not really what Paul's point was. Um, but who is the man of lawlessness? In verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come. Me meaning, Jesus is not coming back. The second advent, Jesus' second coming, is not going to happen unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So we'll talk a little bit about the rebellion in a second. The man of lawlessness. Now, it describes in this passage the man of lawlessness as somebody that is like a, a, somebody that's completely self-worshipping. Somebody that is not, does not worship God is completely self-absorbed. Somebody that is completely is, creates their own identity. Not an identity as an image bearer of God, not an identity in Christ, but somebody that creates their own identity by the things that they do, the things that they love about themselves, the things that they can accomplish, and the things that they say. When we look across the landscape of Scripture, that is what we see. Now, who is this person, and have they already gone by? Like, has that person already, the man of lawlessness, already been, or is the man of lawlessness still to come? A lot of theologians, well, I wouldn't say a lot. I'd say um, there is a portion of evangelical, good, Bible-thumping theologians that believe that the, this man of lawlessness was Nero. Um, and they think because, you know, of course, you know, Nero came into power in 50 AD, and it makes sense based on Paul's words. They've got this guy that's completely off the rails, that's anti-morality, that's anti-God, completely individualistic-driven. Um, not collectivistic like the church is built, but like individualism, my way or the highway. You know, little Frank Sinatra, I did it my way and I'm going to do it my way. And people thought, okay, it's, it's Nero because Nero was completely morally bankrupt. The things that he did, the things, I mean, I don't have to go into it. If you know history, um, he did things that, I mean, he killed his own mom, wife, you know, married a, a, a guy dressed up like his wife. I mean, it just goes on and on and on the things that Nero did. Um, and you, you know, people are like, okay, this must be, in terms of lawlessness, it must be Nero. But in, in other portions of scripture, when we read about this man of lawlessness, again, we got references to the man of lawlessness in, um, you know, by the apostle John and first and second John. So he, there's a, there's a connection here, because I think the, the question that some of you are thinking that if you know, been to Sunday school, or it's like, is this the Antichrist? Well, the majority of authors and commentators treat the term man of lawlessness and Antichrist as 
interchangeable. It's the Gospel Coalition. So when you look at the references to the Antichrist in 1 John, and you look at the references to the Antichrist in um, Revelation, the only time the word Antichrist is used by the Apostle John. Um, and, but you see a, a connection in the description of the Antichrist in both passages are almost identical. It talks about the Antichrist to come, the man of lawlessness to come, that Jesus won't return until this person comes back. Both authors say that. And they both talk about, the myst- one talks about the mystery of lawlessness, which we read in this passage. So you've got you know, uh, Paul talking about the mystery of lawlessness is already at hand. Like the man of lawlessness is to come. It will be the pinnacle of lawlessness on planet earth. But this mystery, this spirit of lawlessness, this mystery of lawlessness is already here. This individualism, this anti-God movement, this movement away from morality, this movement towards humanism, that's already, that was already happening then, and it's happening now. The mystery of lawlessness is already around. And in... First John, it's the spirit of the Antichrist is what he says. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at hand. The Antichrist himself, the person of the Antichrist, is to come. It's almost as they've got these parallels. The Antichrist, man of lawlessness, are to come. The mystery of lawlessness and the spirit of the Antichrist, those are the things that are already happening. They're the same thing. That's, at least that's what most authors believe. Like I said, John's the only author that refers to him as the Antichrist. Um, and he has not come yet. And, and that's, that's rooted in this passage because it says that you would know it. It would be obvious to you if he were here. The rebellion's going to happen, which will be obvious, and the man of lawlessness, it says, will be revealed. So you would know it. You would know that, that he is here. An obvious rebellion would come first. So I want to talk about the rebellion. So who is the man of lawlessness? Yes, the references that you've heard growing up to the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is this human figure that will be on planet Earth, that will be completely morally bankrupt. But when we look at the, the, like the prophetic record, if you go back to Daniel chapter 11, you realize this person also will be a, a deceiver. That's one of the reasons you know it's not Nero. Nero is just out there. It's, it's why it's not Donald Trump, because we, we, we kind of know, like, right? He's not a deceiver. It's just all out there. Like, right? That's the way Nero was. It was like not to put Nero and Donald Trump in the same category. I'm just saying, you've got, you, he's a deceiver. People will love, I mean, that's where you get the ideas that the Antichrist will be somebody that you, and before he's completely revealed, you won't quite know. He'll be somebody that, that's doing things that are, that are positive. There'll be ideas that he will make look good that we should be heading in this direction. He'll present freedom when actually it will be slavery. He'll, he'll, he'll present joy when in actuality it's going to be a life of misery. It's, it'll be deception. So we know this, this person is not, it's not going to be this obvious thing. Satan doesn't work that way. The enemy doesn't work that way. He's not like the, you know, you're cruising around and all of a sudden we see some dude with horns cruising down uh, the road in a Tesla. Again, no reference to any humans that we know. I'm just saying, you're just, there's no, you're, you're, you're not going to know initially. And then there's going to be a revelation in the midst of what this, this rebellion. Now, this rebellion is also mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24. If you've got your Bible and you're taking notes, you can go see how Jesus refers. He says, um, at that time, 
Speaking of the rebellion, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. The pinnacle of false prophets will be the man of lawlessness. So Jesus even mentions this, this rebellion, which in some of your, your, your Bibles, it's not a, be- a rebellion, it's apostasy, which um, the great apostasy refers to a significant falling away from the Christian faith. This isn't a rebellion against the government by unbelievers. This is a rebellion against Christian belief and practice by previously believing uh, and associating people. So that's an important distinction. This appears to be a near consensus of most Reformed and Evangelical scholars. So it's this great apostasy, this rebellion. It, it appears as though when you, when you look at Matthew chapter 24 and you see references to this rebellion that's to come, that it's not just going to be something outside the church where church people all of a sudden realize there's something happening out in society that's bad. Look at all the stuff that's going on in our schools. Look, look at what's happening. In fact, because it will, be a, a, it will start with deception, it's going to boil up from within inside the church. That the abandonment of Scripture, the, the abandonment of the, the resurrection, the abandoning, the death, burial, and resurrection, the hinge of the gospel will begin a slow deception. The mystery of lawlessness will be stirred up from within the church. The rebellion starts in many ways, according to many scholars within the church, which scares me. It makes me think, how, what, what does it look like for you and I? And, and what's, what's the Apostle Paul's point and what's, what's our point in even bringing some of these things up? Well, one is, make sure that the root and the foundation of what hinges you is the Word of God and that the people that, that are in authority over you, the people that are teaching you, that they are also rooted in the Word of God. So we've got this man of lawlessness. We've got the rebellion. We talked briefly about this mystery of lawlessness, which will be the subtle rejection of Christianity inside and outside the church. Now, what else do we know? Point number one, right? What do we know? When we think about end times, is it do you think it's a little bit, it's, it's, it, history has cruised a little bit longer than they thought it would in that day? Yes. Do you think they would have anticipated over 2,000 years? No. I mean, they were thinking next week, people were quitting their jobs going, man, let's get out of here. Jesus is coming back. And Paul's like, don't quit your job, man. You got to get paid. So what do we know? It's been a long, and this educates you. It's been a lot longer than anybody thought it would be. So that's, that's one fact we can carry with us. It's, it's been a while. So what's, what's Paul's point in that? And what's our point? Don't get sidetracked by end times talk. And I'm not saying that to, to bash anybody or, or tear anyone down. Jesus said, hey, watch for the signs. You know, everything's going to happen quickly. But the Apostle Paul is so clear in this letter. Hey, don't get sidetracked. Hey, look, it's been a lot longer than anybody thought. And hey, here's another fact. Here's something else we know. Every single person that has predicted Jesus' return has been wrong. All of them. They've all been wrong. So if somebody's sending you a newsletter... If somebody is sending you a podcast, 
if somebody's sending you a book, if somebody's giving you the, the, the prophecies and saying, this is when it's going to happen, this is, this is happening, we see the signs, we figured it out, it's on this date. Guess what they are? Wrong. Because Jesus himself said, nobody's going to know. People are not going to know. It is not for you to know. So that's what we know. Okay, what do we not know? All right. What do we not know? Well, we don't know when all this will take place. Look at verse two. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's literally telling you, don't listen to that trash. Don't get distracted by it. The enemy would love for you to bunker down and not walk outside of your house and worry about the day of the Lord and Jesus coming back. And the Apostle Paul saying, don't. In fact, when you read Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, so when they had come together, they were thinking back then, the, the, the apostles, they're asking Jesus, Jesus, after the resurrection, has been cruising around for 40 days, over 500 people at once had seen him post-resurrection. So they're like, we should ask that joker some questions while he's here, right? So they say, hey, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're like, hey, are you going to fix everything? This Roman rule kind of is, is lame for us. We, we're, we're not, we don't like this. It's like slavery for us. So you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. You're going to make things good. You're going to... Every, the restoration of all things, right? You're going you're to be on the throne? Fantastic. And he said to them, and it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I mean, it doesn't get more specific than that. It is not for you to know. I mean, I just want to, I mean, when I, every time I want to, every time I see it, I just want to send that Bible verse and say, stop it. Quit it. It's not for you to know. So number three, what matters most? And I love this because we see it right in this scripture. Number one, what matters most? When you look at this passage, what's he want them to understand and know? Because he's trying to settle them down. Don't be alarmed. Number one, you belong to God. He says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He's like, you should feel pretty special. He's like, you're, a, you're first in line, which is very true. Like, we're, we're way down the line. You know, we've, we're many, many years after this. These people, I mean, are coming on the heels of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They're literally listening to the words of Paul. We're reading them thousands of years later. They are the first fruits. He's like, you guys are awesome. Guess what? Y'all are going to be in the book. Like, you're the first fruits. You should feel great. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and your belief in the truth. Not by your works, but by your faith in the truth. He's saying, you are God's. You belong to God. Don't worry. Remember? Keep calm. Carry on. He's saying, keep calm. You belong to God. You've been chosen by God. And God is sovereign over all things. In fact, the references that the Apostle Paul is making to the prophecies in Daniel when he's talking about the man of lawlessness. Those those prophecies are laden with God puts kings in place. When you think about the, the forerunners of the, the, the men of lawlessness, like Nebuchadnezzar, God put Nebuchadnezzar in place to execute his will. He's like, are you worried about anything? Because God, you are his child. 
And he's the one who puts the most powerful kings in place to do God's will. He is sovereign in control of stop worrying. Don't live life with worry. For me, it, the, the, the illustration, it, it always works. It's why God uses the familial language and puts himself in the position of father. Because there's so many seasons in life, if you're a parent or even if you're parented, which includes all of us, there's those moments where you don't, you have a limited window of understanding. Like you don't know all things. And because you don't know all things, either you do stupid things, right? And, and you've got a father that says, hey, slow down, tiger. You know, electricity, it kills people. Like it's just, you, you have a father that will tell you, but you also have a father that beckons you to understand and, and know that you have no reason for fear. Those of us that have raised our kids around the ocean, we've all gone through that process of walking our kid out into the ocean where they, they can't even touch. They can swim, but they're terrified because you can't see what's down there and there's, you know, there's creepy crawlies and all kinds of things. And what are you convincing them? As a father, what are you saying to your child? Don't worry, I got you. I got you. You're mine, and I'm never going to let you go. I remember uh, Ella was always a good swimmer. I remember her paddling out on big, the, the, on, in the early days, big storm swells as a, as a little girl, um, and she could get to the outside. But then you're out there with all these dudes that know how to surf, and you're tiny sitting on a board, and the waves are massive. And she would be scared, and I'd be beckoning her to, you're going to be fine. It's water. And you had to tell them, look, there's, 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 there's joy to be had sliding down that slope, right? You're looking at it, but it looks like it looks so much bigger. From, for, if you don't surf, you look out and you're like, what are people doing out there? Surfing doesn't look like that much fun. The waves don't look that big. And then you get out there, you're like, oh, yeah, they're pretty big. This is actually kind of scary. And you get and you see these. And, and what are you doing is, is a, the, the father, you're saying, you got this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And for those of you that, that your life seems to be out of control, the word of God, God himself, I think, is telling you right now, he wants to remind you that you belong to him. What also matters most, you can see it right here in this passage, is that we stand firm. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. The Apostle Paul saying, stand firm. He's saying, be careful what your mind will do. The enemy will work in the mind. Don't make an assumption. Don't make an assumption about what the future holds. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to give them some more wisdom in the next chapter. Saying, don't, don't act like it's all happening tomorrow. Like, if you think that's, that's what it is, you've made a tragic error. I mean, imagine, like, what happens, like, when... When, uh, when kids get senioritis, some of you got seniors. I mean, what, 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 what do they do? They check out, you know? They break the record of unexcused absences at Fletcher. I know, I've got kids. Um, senioritis, they go a little bit crazy. They're like, hey, it's almost over. We're almost out the door. But, but imagine this, imagine a freshman that thinks they're a senior. And they just start acting like they got senioritis. <laughs> there has been a few. <laughs> but imagine just abandoning everything, not going to class, not doing this stuff. Just imagine the train wreck of grades. Just imagine what it would do. And they don't know. They think they're a senior. They think, they think it's, 
They're, they're a couple of months from graduating when they're actually, they're years away. And the Apostle Paul's coming and saying, stand firm. Don't make assumptions. Be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Don't assume. Don't go beyond to make the decisions. Don't start making decisions uninformed. Adhere to the truth, the traditions you were taught by us. He says what? He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by spirit or spoken word or letter that's, that's seemingly coming from us, but where you've gotten other information, other things that have gotten into the framework. Because there was people that were also not, not just people that were quitting their jobs and going, woo, Jesus will be back. It don't matter. Not going to take care of my family. No, there was people that were freaking out. There were people that were fearful. They were withdrawing from this, this battle against the enemy, which they were feeling in persecution in Thessalonica. And they're like, you know what? This persecution, we've kind of had it, plus Jesus is going to be back in a week. So let's batten down the hatches. And the Apostle Paul's like, stand firm. Stand firm. You can stand firm. And lastly, what matters most, he says, live with a mindset of hope. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Listen to this. Jesus Christ himself. I think he's being clear. He's like the king of the universe who with his breath defeats the enemy. He not only creates the world and breathes out the stars, everything that we see and everything that we love in creation by the breath and by the words of his mouth, he also will destroy the enemy. He's letting you know, hey, don't worry this rebellion will be squashed by a word. This man of lawlessness will be shut down by what? By his word. Paul's being very clear. He's like, hey, I know all of this is coming. I want you to know so you know what's happening. And so you know it hasn't happened yet and you don't get distracted. And when it does, guess what? Jesus is going to squash it. He's going to crush it. The one that loves us and gave us what? Eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He says, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Don't forget who's on your side. Don't, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of who's on your side. Now, this is where the Apostle Paul is, is leading them not completely away from the future, like, hey, just live in the moment. Don't think about what's to come. He also wants them to know, hey, you got a glorious future. I want you to know, don't, don't hitch your wagon to everything down here. Because you, you're, you're beautiful sons and daughters of the king. You've got a life to come. You are, you are citizens of heaven, not of earth. You, you, this, is a, this, is a, this is, it might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might be a long time from now. But eternity, this will be a blip on the radar in comparison to, what does he say? Eternal hope. Eternity. He's like, don't, don't forget who you're connected to. Don't forget what life is going to look like for you as a son and a daughter of the king. Dan reminded me this weekend just that I, I did a talk years ago called Two Weeks Notice when we're thinking about our future hope. Because that's different than senioritis where you bail on everything. Well, you could do it with two weeks notice and treat your boss like trash and go, you know, whatever. When you've finally given your two weeks notice. But think about the idea of giving two weeks notice. 
I mean, that's the guy in the office that's the happiest. Like if he's got, especially if he's got a better job, right? Just got an amazing job, huge upgrade, not a lateral move, but I'm making, you know, big dollars, new boss, new company. Loved where I worked, but, you know, there's, there's blue sky. You know, the grass actually is greener, Bob, right? I'm heading somewhere that's great. That, that, th- those two weeks, there's no more joy because I know what's coming. I know what's coming. I know what my future is. So I'll come to work early and I'll leave late. No, take my chair. You know, what are you doing? Oh, hey, you take credit for the project. It's fine, right? You're going to be the nicest. You're going to be the kindest. You're going to be the most gracious. Nothing is going to take you off of your game. There's a joy that exists knowing the future. There's a joy that exists. So imagine if you won the lottery, but you knew that you weren't going to get the cash for, you know, the next six months. Would you pre-spend? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd be holding that paper up at the bank and driving. I mean, you'd be in a sweet setup because you know the future. And the Apostle Paul, I mean, look at the book of Ephesians. He, he lays it out. He says, you've got, you are going to be seated at the right hand of the Father along with Jesus. And what he's saying in that is, and he's saying, you are getting the same inheritance that the king of the world, the king of the universe has. He's trying to represent to them what our feeble brains probably can't even take in. Is It's going to be better than anything that we could possibly imagine. The hope, the hope that you have. And what the apostle Paul wants from them is, don't give up. You got a glorious future, but you're here. And what he wants for them is, is what I think God wants for us, is that we be in the game, that we're not just spectators. I mean, it, it, our church, what, we, what we're calling people to is to invite anyone and everyone to experience what we've experienced, the unending ocean of grace that comes only through Jesus. But there's an enemy that should hate you if you're carrying his name. He should hate you because you're fearless. You know, I recently watched a documentary, um, 30 for 30. I love those. Uh, Bullies of Baltimore. Anybody seen it? I'm older, so the, the, the Ravens that just were so dominant. Um, I mean, how do you win a Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer? I don't know. Uh, you got to have a good defense. And these guys had a defense. This is, I mean, if you go watch it, you'll realize NFL teams were scared of these guys. Like they knew they were going to win and it wasn't because Trent Dilfer was going to be throwing touchdowns. It was because the other team was not going to score. They, NFL teams, 16 games, averaged 10.5 points a game. NFL teams were scared. I mean, they talk about it. Like people, NFL players, have you seen NFL players? They shouldn't be scared of anything, but they shuddered at the thought of playing the bullies of Baltimore to play the Baltimore Ravens. Corey Dillon tapped out. I've never seen it in my life, Cincinnati Bengals. He tapped out of a game. He got hit a couple of times by Ray Lewis and a couple of other players. And he just, you see him just walking off the field. The coach is like, where are you going? He's like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. NFL players bullying him. And, and, I, and, I, and I think about what Paul wants He wants these people to be a problem for the enemy. And we should be a problem for the enemy. 
That's who we should be as human beings. Fearless. Not worried about what's in our bank account. Not worried about the future because it's set, but fearless. The Apostle Paul, look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, you think about how people talked about him. He was frustrating for the enemy, human enemies and spiritual enemies, certainly. People knew who he was because he was fearless. He wouldn't stop carrying the name of Jesus. I love there's a story, I think it's in Acts chapter 19, uh, the seven sons of Sceva. I just like to say it, seven sons of Sceva. Um, Sceva was a, he was a, uh, a Jewish uh, demon caster outer. I mean, that's just kind of what his job was. Like he, he tried to do it the best he could. And he had seven sons and he was trying to train them, I guess. I don't know, read the story. Um, it's pretty crazy. So the seven sons of Sceva are trying to do dad's work and they're, they're praying for, uh, and they, they've seen the, the apostles cruising around and just like in the name of Jesus, casting demons out. So they're like, you know, I adjure you by the, the Jesus of Nazareth, this G Jesus of Judea, and by the words of Paul to get out of here. And the demon just kind of pops out and, and, and starts talking. I mean, could you imagine? Freaks everybody out, says, hey, I certainly know who Jesus is. And I've, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? At that moment, you should be scared, right? You know, but who are you? And he beat, literally beats the pants off of him. If you read the passage, they, the seven sons of Sceva run out of the house fully naked. You got to read the Bible. It's great. Um, <laughs> but I love that they, that they go, he, the demons, I certainly know who Jesus is. And I've heard of Paul. He was a problem for the enemy. He was a bully to the enemy. You couldn't mess with him. He had no fear. He was full of hope. He says, man, suffering down here, momentary. It's light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that I'm going to experience in heaven. And with that mindset, this hopeful mindset, as a church, as human beings, no longer spectators, people that are captivated by Jesus so much, captivated by his glory so much that it makes you an unstoppable, fearless bunch of people that are charging the darkness. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to be. Not insulating and protecting. I feel like we, we, we've gotten in that zone a little bit. Not us as a church, but I think as a church community globally of how do we protect our families? It's not about protecting your family. Jesus has your family. God's got you. He has you. Now fight. Carry the name of Jesus to your friends, to your neighbors, to your workplace. Be bold to talk about who he is because God has you. In Romans 8, I, I love this passage, 31. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? In, in response to suffering, the apostle's talking to the church, church at Rome. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He said, yeah, I suffer. But look, look who's on your side. Look who's going to carry you through to the other side. 
Man, I want to ask this question. Because I, I, mean, I know what it's like to, to have being in seasons of darkness. How, how many in here, and I'm going to look, how many in here you've walked through a season of darkness? Raise your hand. That's a lot, a lot of people. Now, wait, wait, don't be all Baptist and put them down yet. Keep them up. Keep them up. If you walk through, there was a bunch of you. Keep them up. Now, how many of you have seen God in his faithfulness carry you to the other side of that? Keep them up. Now, for those of you that are in a season of darkness right now, you're in it. I want you to look around. You're in the worst place in your life. You are, you, you feel like you're dying inside. You look around. There's a whole bunch of people testifying and proclaiming right now that God was on their side in their darkest trial, in their darkest moment. And I got my hand up too. And I can look backwards and I can see his faithfulness in it. He's going to carry you through. He is going to carry you through. We shouldn't lose hope. We shouldn't lose hope. Look who's on our side. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for you and for you and for you.